If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. that I love our intro music. Really? (laughs) Why do you love it so much? I love it because it is the perfect mix between kind of a jazzy, crimey thing and Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks, Which you know I'm a huge, crazy Twin Peaks But it fits downtown LA really well, especially with the revitalization of downtown, which is so great these days. It's perfect. I love it. Thank you for for getting that for us. <laughs> um, so welcome back. We are starting out episode two of LA Not So Confidential and I am Dr. Shiloh and I'm here with Dr. Scott. Thanks for coming back you guys. Um, we're very excited about our tens of listeners that were way <laughs> more, ser- seriously way more than we expected this early. Thank you so much. Hopefully you'll stick with us as we try and um, get off our training wheels for this as we kind of are stumbling through these first couple of episodes. But I think we're going to continue to have fun. So really, thanks for coming back. Absolutely. Uh, so what we have planned for you this episode is we're going to look at the concept of people who live double lives. Um, we're going to tie in some real life cases. And then we also want to talk about, of course, Scott Peterson, as we promised and some of the more psychological terms that usually go along with this sort of thing. Especially with him, because we've, you know, it's pretty much set up with his current conviction, with the background, the accusations, that he fits a, a pretty, pretty um, predetermined profile that we're going to talk about, which is broadly is antisocial personality disorder. Okay, so if you're going to live a double life, you got to have some skills, right? I mean, you've got to have some mad skills. So what what would you think would be the main one? Um, being able to tell a really good lie. Absolutely. So what's fascinating about lying is that, you know, if you look into the research on behavior and neuropsychology, it tells us that lying is actually a cognitive skill. I mean, it is hardwired into us and it serves a purpose. It's part of um, what we call higher order thinking and reasoning. So to simplify it as an equation, you know, you have to know how to lie in order to tell the truth. It sounds counterproductive. It does. Or inception almost, right? A lie within a lie. Right. Because what happens is, is that's something that toddlers learn to do. You as a parent, I'm sure with your child at one point, it suddenly just like you realize, Oh, my kid knows how to lie. Right. My kid knows how to tell a fib, even though they're probably not very good at it because it's about, you know, whatever imaginative thing she managed to. Right. And the first thought is, 
Where did she learn to do that? Exactly. Exactly. But it well, is more innate. Okay, so here you, you cannot blame yourself or your husband or your in-laws. It's that it's wired into and us. And did so, not model it for her. Right. And it's lying or fibbing is basically it's a way of saying no. Or it's the toddlers or, you know, the it's a developmental stage where the individual, the child, really starts playing with autonomy. And establishing autonomy in the family structure. So, uh, what is it? Research from the child study at Toronto University show that children who lie as early as age two grow up to be more successful than children who learn to lie later. How freaky is that? Interesting. It's a needed skill. It is. It's a problem solving skill. It is a problem solving skill. We keep secrets sometimes to keep people happy. Right? Sure. Because if we all walked around like Ricky Gervais in The Invention of Lying, that right. really hilarious movie, we'd all be miserable because we would not be telling these white lies that preserve people's emotions and their view of themselves in the world, in the relationship with the person that's telling them that lie. Sure. Right? So that's what lying gets us. It gets us this mastery, this autonomy in the world. We're going to get to this later about sociopathy and antisocial personality disorder, but say that you're not a person who is disordered. You're not an inherently bad person or even that's a little bit judgmental. (laughs) Now I'm going to have the psychopaths after me. (laughs) Not clinically bad. But the idea that someone who's, you know, on the normal spectrum of behaviors, but has created a secret life for themselves. If they lie chronically for years, that has serious mental and emotional consequences because that builds up. Because there's pressure. It's like it's like the image that, I mean, we don't see it so much anymore, but in television variety shows or circus where you see the person who's spinning all the plates. Right. And they have to keep the plates spinning on the sticks, rushing back and forth and ever keep everything in balance. Well, right. that's what a liar is doing. Right. They have created this veneer that they present to the world that's not actually true. So you're so, saying it's causing these emotional reactions within the liar? Yes. Themselves. There are uh, reactions to that, to compressing, to pushing down your emotions. That that energy has to come out somewhere. So if you sublimate in one area, that energy is going to come out somewhere in rage and anger and depression and anxiety. Or physiologically. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you'll feel it in your body. So what I wanted to do is we're going to talk about, give you a couple of examples of, of people who had um, double lives. <clears throat> so yeah okay so let me give you we'll start out with something pretty heavy and then we'll try and lighten it okay. up okay who are we going to talk about first we're going to talk about uh professor salot sar okay. probably not a very common name to right. many people and from 1956 to 1963 he was an incredibly respected professor of french literature at a private college in phnom penh which is the capital city of cambodia okay so in 1963, Professor Sar disappears, and no one knows what happens to this guy. His family is distraught. His students are distraught because he's remembered as this incredibly kind and supportive and respected individual. So he disappears. Well, what people didn't know is for that span of time that he had been this respected literature professor at a respected university. In his off hours, he was 
the leader of the communist movement in Cambodia, looking to overthrow the government. Who has time for all of I, that? Seriously. <laughs> what? Grading papers. Grading. Uh, come on. Our teachers are overworked as it is. God, overachiever. I know. And unfortunately, it turned out really quite horribly. I mean, it's it's one of the things, if, if those of you out there who, if you've seen the movie The Killing Fields from about 25 right. years ago, it's a, a brutal, brutal portrayal of what happened when Professor Saar, who changed his name to Pol Pot, came back in, basically slaughtered 100,000 people almost immediately, and then drove the survivors out into the rural countryside and continued to kill them. And then the, the persecution and the killing continued. Anyone who was considered an academic was slaughtered. Anyone who was wearing glasses and perceived to be an academic was slaughtered. And he was an academic and wore glasses. Yeah, talk, talk about sublimated rage, right? Wow. Like maybe he didn't get tenure, you know, oh. or whatever their version of it was. I mean, right? that's, that's horrific. <clears throat> so that's a really, you know, pretty bold example of someone who led a, led a double life and it really turned into something horrifically violent on a, a national scale. You know, it's not, it's more than personal. It's a national scale. Absolutely. So let's lighten it up a little bit. Please do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I want to give you another example. And this is someone who's a little more current. We're going to go back in our way back machine to just three years ago in 2014. And we're going to go to the lovely state of Florida, which, you know, you got to love oh, Florida because you can always Florida. depend on Florida to give us some colorful characters. So I want to talk about Jake Rush. And Jake Rush, he's an American attorney, well-respected attorney at his parents' law firm known for challenging the incumbent um, Theodore Scott Yoho for the United States House of Representatives seat for Florida's 3rd Congressional District. So he pretty much was the perfect congressional candidate. He was an attorney. He was law enforcement. He was a sheriff's deputy. Oh, wow. And a very, very deeply religious man, a religious family man. This guy's married and has kids. Mm -hmm. But what his constituents don't know about this conservative straight shooter is that he was a cocaine vampire. And what the hell is a cocaine vampire? <laughs> right. You might ask. Shiloh, you might ask, what is a cocaine vampire? Please, please. <clears throat> so Jake really was into LARPing. Have you heard the term LARPing? You, you have to know what LARPing is. I do. Okay, so LARPing is live action role playing. And um, he was part of an organization that at that time called the Mind's Eye Society. And it's, it's pretty much what you probably think it is. It's a, an adult club for adults to play very deep, intense, and elaborate games of make-believe. They're making up worlds. But they were actually basing a lot of their role play on Dungeons & Dragons and other role-playing games that actually... You know, it's not just, I mean, hopefully it's not all just sex-oriented, but right. it was, you know... More mainstream, more... Right. Except that, you know, some of the, the texts that were released when it's... I mean, first what came out were the pictures of him in his goth attire with the black uh, contact lenses and the, the pale white pancake makeup, which... And please I'm, tell me he's like this really good-looking... No. Uh, no, he's Vampire, like, he's like, potty. yeah, he's, he's, um, Count Pillsbury Doughboy is what he is. He's like a receding hairline ginger 
with yeah. a little bit of a doughy face. So he's not he's not Lestat. He's definitely not Lestat. Um, in fact, the name of his one of his alter egos was Chaz Darling, who was a BDSM vampire and a just a huge fan of cocaine, who wrote really horrible texts to some of his uh, slave girls. Chaz, Chaz Darling. Darling. It's really like a, it's like the name of a drag queen in Tampa. That's what, what I'm thinking. Bringing it back to Florida. Right, bringing it back to Florida. <laughs> so, Woo. there are two extremes, really two extremes. I mean, that ruined his political career, obviously. Um, and then another example of someone who led a double life that's very current here in Southern California right now uh, and has been profiled in depth and elegantly, elegantly by the LA Times podcast, Dirty John, is John Meehan. And this is someone who was a very, very skilled con man who not only took one woman and her family for a a horrific ride, but also left just a string of destruction across the country in relationships in his own family. Just a, a really not a good guy, but he found the perfect person to present these lies to and was able to live this double life. I'm not going to go any further into it because I'd really like you guys to go out and either read the LA times article or um, download the podcast. It's amazing. Can't say enough good things about it. It's wonderful. I just finished it this morning and I was telling, I was texting Scott while we were at work today, telling him that I was tearing up in the car. I was cheering out loud in the final episode. It's just, it's incredible. It's six short episodes. Yeah. Please listen to it. Please, comes highly recommended. So it really sounds like, especially with this Dirty John case, that the pathological lying was the platform for him, as well as a lot of other people who live double lives, to really keep, like you said, all those plates in the air. Right. Um, and definitely, you know, turning towards the Lacey Peterson case, Scott Peterson was keeping a lot of plates in the air um, while this was going on. So I just want to give a little bit of a breakdown backstory of the Lacey Peterson case, just to recap quickly for the audience. And then we'll talk a little bit more about um, tying in some of the the psychological terms and some of our observations, especially with Scott's behavior. Right. And it should be just to, to reinforce that this is a fascinating case and there is so much information available online. I mean, it's it's right. all available online. A lot of opinions, a lot of um, really well-formed opinions, some very poorly formed opinions. We'll link some of that stuff in the show notes yeah, I think eventually. That's a good idea. Um, so the, the reason that this kind of came to the forefront of our minds recently, so A&E did a series looking at the case. It's called The Murder of Lacey Peterson. And it ended about three weeks ago or so, so hopefully everyone has had a chance to to catch it. Honestly, it's six episodes, and the first five were a total snooze fest for me. Really? Well, wait, was that because you knew everything? Yeah, I think it was just, okay, it was a nice recap. Um, it, It was nice to hear from people now that sort of were integral parts of the media sensation part of the case, like Nancy Grace and... Um, Some of the the local reporters (laughs) that just talked about how crazy it was to go through that whole thing. Um, 
but we're going to, we're going to talk about episode six, which has some enlightening features to it. But let me just recap some things for you. If you're unfamiliar with the case. So Christmas Eve, 2002, Lacey, who's eight months pregnant, essentially goes missing. So she's reported missing by her husband. He had been on a fishing trip that morning, comes back home. She's gone. The, the dog is in the backyard with its leash on. Okay. Um, Basically, he notifies friends and family, and then they decide to call the police. Um, but a pretty quickly, I mean, there was a huge outpouring with friends and family and community because Lacey was known and really well-loved, and here is this woman that's about to have a baby right before Christmas, and it's just, you know, very emotional for people. So um, a command post is set up right away, just putting out flyers, a uh, tip line to come in. It was a really slow time of year for media. So I think that's where the rest of us become involved. Okay. Is that within a day, there are reporters on the front yard staked out and nothing else is going on. So wow. this kind of takes on this life of its own, um, turns into this circus pretty quickly. Um, and it, I, do you think... I, I think that that was an easy focus too. I mean, it, mm-hmm. like, without going into a, a, a very important, deeper, and needed conversation about race politics in our country. Right. But like, here's this white all-American couple. Oh yeah. You know that, like you said, beloved by the community. Mm-hmm. That were well known. I mean, there's his background. As I started researching it, is remarkably clean. Sure. I mean, remarkably sure. clean. Sure. He was like, he was the golden child yeah. of that family. Absolutely. So they were the golden couple, and she's just, you know, so adorable. And you see this beautiful, brilliant smile in yeah, every, every picture. picture. Um, yeah, I think it was. It's very similar to like the John Bonnie Ramsey case that happened at Christmas. Exactly. Nothing perfect. else is going yeah. on. You have this beautiful image that you can plaster on the news, and everybody wants to know what's going on. So. Um, so that was the on Christmas Eve. Um, the police start their investigation on the 28th of December. They end up searching, searching, excuse me, the marina where Scott was fishing. So now the media starts picking up, like, eh, what is this connection to the husband? Um, and then on New Year's Eve, they say that they're going to turn their investigation more towards foul play rather than just a missing person. Okay. So that adds a little bit of fuel to the fire as well. And did she take things? I mean, it wasn't like she left keys and wallet and purse at home, right? Was so things- her normal schedule was to take the dog for a walk in the okay. morning. So um, it was strange that the dog was on the leash in the backyard. But what happened is as witnesses started to come out, um, a neighbor actually found the dog walking the neighborhood on the leash. So as if Lacey had gone on the walk and disappeared or was about to take the dog on a walk and disappeared. So the neighbor took the dog and was friendly to it and put it in the backyard and closed the gate. Okay. So that's why the dog still has a leash on okay. in the backyard. Um, and there's so much about the timeline and some holes and new theories that are coming up as well. Um, but essentially right after the new year on January 3rd, the police hold a press conference and ask the public to help verify Scott's alibi. 
So again, there's even more kind of scrutiny of what's going on with Scott. Meanwhile, there's still the community command post set up, um, search parties, friends and family. Scott is there. He's being pretty active in it. Um, but everyone is dissecting his behavior. The media is filming him every time he's coming in and out of the house. And it reminds me of the scene from the opening scenes from Gone Girl. Yes. Oh, very much. You know, which I, I wonder if the author, um, if Gillian Flynn, kind of used that as an inspiration because yeah. that it's the exact same. The cameras and mm-hmm. he and Ben Affleck is incredibly awkward. You know, it's, yeah. It's, well, it's, I mean, it's for anybody, regardless of their involvement, whether they're criminally involved or not. That's going to be a very uncomfortable. Sure. Situation. How do you act? All that scrutiny. Yeah, and maybe you are standoffish, and maybe you don't want to deal with a camera in your face, and right. everybody is dissecting how you're acting, whether it's the way you're supposed to, quote unquote, or not. Um, So by mid-January, Lacey's family starts to distance themselves a little bit from Scott, um, holding a press conference saying, hey, we want Scott to say all that he knows about this case. We don't think he's saying everything. So you start to see this, this slow divide happen. And then January 24th is when Amber Fry comes forward. And talk about Media Circus. Um, in the A&E series, they really do a good job at highlighting just what um, tension the police kind of held with this press conference and this announcement they were going to make. And then this little blonde woman comes out and says she's been having an affair with Scott Peterson for X number of weeks um, prior to Lacey actually going missing. So that was that was the huge bombshell, if I'll yeah. use a Nancy Grace term, yeah. um, that just people wrote him off right away. Yeah. So. It's um, also, I would want to put a note in here that's just a side note about Amber. Um, Amber was incredibly cooperative with the police. I mean, she was incredibly helpful. And, you know, having worked in this milieu for years now, you see people that are treated incredibly poorly by not necessarily all news media outlets, but you know, once the fi- once the match is dropped and the kindling takes fire, it's it's out of everybody's control. And one of the things that happened to Amber, which was really just downright mean, was that she, the first time she comes on camera, um, I think she had just come from the gym, or it was early in the morning, so she had no makeup on. You know, I think she had her hair in a ponytail or yeah, something. Was she was completely not prepared for it. So, but she's there giving her honest statements and coming forward and being, you know, cooperative and authentic, you right. know, to the extent that she could. And then, you know, a week later, as she is brought more, more into the light, now, you know, she's gotten dressed and she's got her hair done. And the media excoriated her because of that. Like, oh, she's got a makeover. I think it was Nancy Gracie. And it was oh like, God. she's got a makeover. And then it was really, Aww. what the hell? She was able to get a shower. Leave her alone. Right. You know? Right. She probably hasn't slept in weeks and is terrified. Right. And, yeah. But that's the stuff that it people, is. when they watch these things, they don't want to think about. They don't want to think about how there's a whole spectrum of human behaviors. And you think, oh, that person's acting cold. Or, oh, that person's so dramatic. It's like, no, these are out of the ordinary, extraordinary situations where you're not going to be able to predict to predict people's behavior. No. no. Um, eventually in March, they end up 
declaring it a homicide even though there's still no bodies. So three months. Yeah, three months. Um, and then in April of 20, sorry, 2003, um, Lacey and Connie, Connor's bodies wash ashore in Richmond, California. So um, Scott's and he ends up getting arrested in San Diego on April 18th, 2003. He had changed his appearance. He had a large sum of cash with him. He had his brother's passport with him. Um, and so... Did he steal the brother's passport? Do we know that? I don't know that. Okay. Um, but that's kind of the end of... From Lacey going missing to Scott being arrested and how the suspicion built up. So one of the things that is fascinating about this is looking at Scott's history is you want to find, like we talked about diagnostically, you want to find these factors that would indicate that there were problems, like they should have seen this coming. And in the material that I've been able to look at, I'm not seeing that at all. I mean, the parents still say, you know, what a great kid he was, and he had good grades. He wasn't someone that was breaking rules. He wasn't someone that was engaging in criminal acts that I can find. Maybe right. some other evidence will have come forward. Right. He has siblings. He has siblings, right. Same thing. Uh, was a, an avid golfer, you know, from a very early age, very talented at it, very driven, but, you know, being driven at being at sports, that's not a that's not a bad thing. That's no, a good thing. The There is an odd thing about him receiving a scholarship that he didn't take, hmm. or he was placed on a list and told people that's what it was. He was placed on a list as a possible golf scholarship um, recipient for a college, and then one of the coaches came back later and said, "No, he was he was not really on the list for anything." We had had a conversation. But so was, minor, though. I it mean, is so minor. It's not like I mean, it could have been a misinterpretation of a young college man, right, right. or somebody just coming out, or of high thinking school. you were going to get it and right. telling a white lie. Right, uh, like we're talking here, preserving yeah. people, and also exactly. building up your own ego string. Sure. Well. So that's still nothing out of the ordinary. Right. Um, but then when all of this starts to get revealed about Amber, it just adds another layer. Right. And again, because they seem like such the golden couple, and then you peel back this layer, and I think it touches people deeply also because they were about to have their first child, you know, it should be this experience that is bonding you in a marriage and a relationship unlike anything else. And to imagine that that would then be the time that someone chooses to start this other relationship. And I'm not alluding to starting a new relationship as being a double life necessarily, because that happens a lot. And I think we're talking about an extreme case. But just the timing feels really nasty for people it, yeah it's it's um it's that ick factor yes. you know it's the ick factor especially with the, the as far <laughs> along as the pregnancy was but maybe you know characterologically we're looking at someone who really has the ability to compartmentalize sure so is there a history of true diagnosable psychopathy or is this just something that got out of hand? Was it a fantasy life that he was allowing himself to have that spun out of control? Right. Because like we were using the image earlier, the plates spinning in the air, the guy ended up having a lot of plates. Now also we should talk about historically, he and Lacey were really good together with mm -hmm. what they did 
with their businesses. They saw a business opportunity, started a burger shack in a college town, did well, sold that that business, moved on, went into other areas of work. I mean, it's not like there was a financial issue here. No. He was a romantic guy. You know, they talk about all through their courtship, he was incredibly romantic. Now, that is a little... That, to me, gets a little icky when you think about, okay, he was such a loving and, you know, romantic um, suitor for Lacey, which is well-described. Sure. And then you find later he did the same thing for Amber. Right, Along with creating a very different backstory, right? Yeah. So So you wonder, is this, you know, did he want to have a fling on the side, whatever, he's stressed out, he... Christmas, pregnancy, I don't know. And okay, he's an outlet. Yeah, and you know what? That to build on that, that's not to say that just because you have the trappings of a successful relationship, right? What I don't hear, and this comes from me being, you know, a marriage and family therapist and working with couples in my private practice, Mm -hmm. and is the idea of communication like we don't really hear a lot about him we don't hear about him being a golden boy right right but I'm not getting in what I've read this sense of that there's a guy who came to people to talk about problems right to talk about challenges you really don't get a sense of that in any of the material so with someone who does that they're internalizing all their issues they're trying yes. to deal with it on their own. And we know that that often boils over by some sort of acting out behavior, whether it's being sexually promiscuous, whether it's violence, um, something else that's unhealthy, gambling, shopping, yeah, so substance use. Exactly. Like we were talking about, we were using our psychobabble terms of sublimating the right. problematic emotions so that those that drive that that needed release gets displaced on another object. So maybe he was compartmentalizing whatever issues were going on with him and Lacey. We don't know what those were. But for some reason, he chose to pursue this other life or attempted another life with Amber. Right. So the aspects of him living this dual reality were that he started this relationship, this romantic relationship with Amber, he said that his wife had died. Now that creeps me out. Prior to Lacey even going missing, right. he tells Amber his wife has died. This will be the first holidays without her, and he's kind of sad about that. So this is all in the. A lot of this is in. Once Amber starts cooperating with the police, they wiretap her phones and they're recording all these conversations. So let's flip it back to episode. 1.5 where we're talking about psychopathy right and those um, bullet points of this type of behavior which is finding the hook yeah right so the hook here was I'm a nice guy going through a really hard time and the love of my life just died and Amber's a single mom and maybe looking for a man who knows she can be in a relationship and be committed right but didn't get the opportunity to fulfill that and have children of his own. I mean, how perfect of victim picking is that? Yeah. And someone that also doesn't judge what she does. Right. Which is another factor that Amber was really maligned, is that she was a massage therapist. Sure. And just because, you know, it's something that the larger public 
you know, we accept body work. I mean, certainly here in Southern California, it's mm-hmm. like, hey, man, you're having a stressed out week. Get a real massage. Get in there and, you know, have somebody that's an expert work out right. those knots. But the way it was portrayed in the media basically yeah. was it's almost, you know, I don't think if anybody, I don't know if anybody actually came out and called her a prostitute. Right. However, like there was they, that flavor that they... Yeah, this salaciousness that sure. really was not fair in their portrayal of her. Right, right. So taking it back, here he is, he's creating this alternate persona, this double life that he presents to Amber using characteristics of the first life as well, this charming... Right, you know, achiever guy. Right, you know, another, what he knows. Another golden boy. He knows how to be that. Right, right. And he had once it got into Lacey actually going missing, and so obviously his time is being taken up with the search for Lacey and um, all of that. He then starts to spin the lying into his job takes him out of the country, and he can't see her. There's cameras planted in his front yard. That's, he can't just go visit his girlfriend. Right. right? And that, well, and the other, the and on, layered on top of that is that there's cameras in your front yard, dude. Like you don't think she's going to see this, right? Like how many, how many that, television stations are yeah, there? I think that's when plates start crashing down right. for him because he has this secret that was going on, but now he didn't know he was going to be on the news every single night. So, um, and there's another thing that I find fascinating too is that he left that relationship with Amber developed to the point where they took Christmas card photos together. They took I know pictures at a Christmas party. Oh I thought that was that she had. It was a Christmas party she threw. But then she mailed that out as Christmas cards. Oh God. Yeah, that's what I'm understanding it from the research I did. Wow. I hope that's correct. Wow. Um yeah. It Again, just the impulsivity factor. Yeah. Of, sure, let's go ahead and take photos. Um, and just thinking that you're going to find some way out of it. And that's what I, I feel we are getting a lot of flavors of with these psychopaths. And like the Dirty John is just like, oh, I'll, I'll wiggle my way out of this. Because he did. Yeah. Right? Oh, I mean, yeah. He, had, he had done sure. Dirty John is also a, a perfect example of somebody that did it over and over. And he had a, he made a career out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll mm-hmm. talk about um, John John Anderson, I believe, is another one that's really famous that is another con man that just took advantage of women for decade after decade, right. just emptying bank accounts across the country. Where you and I are like, how could you think that you would get out of this? But they're like, oh, I'll find a way. Well, and let's, you know, let's talk about what you and I, before we started recording today, we were talking about going through the process of studying for our licensure exams. Right. Right? And how we're, you and I both have our areas of things that we're really good at. And we both knew that studying for these exams, which are quite rigorous here in California, was going to be challenging. You know, you were a young mom. Right. You know, um, I was working a lot of jobs and traveling because of those jobs. Right. But we have to get it done. The idea that we had to go outside our comfort zones because it wasn't necessarily that taking those exams and studying for those exams are a whole different animal from the things that we're good at. Sure. In that same way, I can relate to the idea that, like, maybe for Scott, that this was not something he was used to as far as not being the expert in how to manage this double life. 
Dirty John knew how he to, was an expert. He was sure, an expert. Sure. Maybe Scott wasn't the expert. I'm, and this is just sort of no. I I definitely lean towards that because I think with Scott it was less planned and it was situational and almost akin to like Susan Smith. Hey, Oof. I'm gonna kill my kids because my boyfriend doesn't want me to have kids he's yeah. gonna leave me so almost like that impulsivity is so driven and single lane focus it doesn't allow somebody to look outside of the consequences right. so right. I mean he's he, Scott has been found guilty right. so it's not like we're you know necessarily saying that this was not um, adjudicated properly for sure but it is really it's the thing that makes it icky or another ick factor is the idea that this fishing trip, who goes fishing alone at that holiday time when your wife is eight months pregnant? I mean, you know, most people would yeah. think... Yeah, I think you got stuff to do on Christmas Eve to help your wife out, like cooking or right. I mean, that's, wrapping a gift or two. Yeah, and then that, the place that he went was in the location where the body is found. Right. And those are the things that tie back to that idea of that impulsivity that wasn't quite thought through. Sure. Okay, so one of the things that I find really interesting also, I think I use the word interesting too much. Me too. That's a problem. I'm going to have to <laughs> improve my vocabulary for that. But in his calls that were wired once Amber was working with the police, she had been, what, notified by a friend? Was that it? I think that's how she found out. Well, no, because the police would have already told her if she's working with the cops. But she, she essentially the police said, okay, you need to call him on the fact that you know that he's part of this case where this woman is missing and see okay. what he says. To, so I think to, her story to him was, hey, a friend said that she saw you on the news. Oh, got it. Okay. Like that, right? Because in reading the transcripts, and the, the transcripts are freely available online. Mm-hmm. They're, mm-hmm. they're kind of amazing. Um, Amber is coming at this situation. She's questioning... Uh, you know, how could you be dishonest to me? You know, and how could you, you told me. You told me in early December that your wife was dead and she right. wasn't even missing yet. And you told me that you were, um, you in were in Paris. Paris. <laughs> right. <laughs> While you're standing at the vigil. Right. And the thing I find interesting about reading the transcript, I have, didn't listen to it. I know there's audio of it that probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, in, it's on the A&E special too. Okay. So I'm listening, I mean, I'm reading the um, transcript, and when I see, tying back to what we talked about earlier about the idea idea of lying, is this evasiveness and just jumping back and forth. Like, he is bobbing and weaving and pretty expertly avoiding directly Mm -hmm. answering questions. And I still can't figure out what the end game was for that. Like, I don't... I don't understand what it benefited him to even continue that relationship. Did he sure. feel like he needed somebody in his corner? Or as soon as this hits the news, I mean, you've only been dating for a certain amount of weeks, right? Cut right. it off. I mean, what's what? What are you getting from that? You you've wounded this person's life. And now, obviously, what what's happening here? And we have to be always be careful about this. this is what I learned very early in my you know journey <laughs> through this uh, this field is that 
you know, um, I may not have my own set of baggage and my own set of crazy town, but I know the geography of the neighborhood I live in internally, <laughs> right, right? Right. So we got to be really careful about getting on our bus or driving our car through our inner neighborhood that we know very well, because once right. we go try and go into Scott's neighborhood, right, it's going to be crazy town for sure you know we can't really figure out what the motivation is unless he you know sometime at some point in the future comes forward and says right. this is what it was about right which he still maintains his innocence to this day oh wow so they're working on actually um uh his family has attorneys working on a habeas investigation to see if he can get a new trial. Okay, so they're looking toward a new trial. They're working toward a new trial. They're looking at some legal issues to dispute. There was a lot of jury drama, actually, that went right. on. Um, there was, like, some um, dog scent evidence that was introduced that was a little bit shaky. So, I mean, there's some legal things that they're looking at, but they're also looking at these alternative theories of other suspects or other offenders so, so what, what are those are so, you, did you bone up on those because i didn't yeah that yeah so there's um so we're i think one that's really interesting there's that word again <laughs> so six months before Lacey went missing there was this other pregnant woman in the bay area evelyn hernandez and she was also eight months pregnant and she goes missing and her body washed up on the shore of the same bay. Okay, that is pretty coincidental. Um, yeah. Head, hands, and feet missing, just like Lacey. Okay. So, is this a matter of, you know, the same person weighing down a body in the same way in the same bay? Or two people, I don't know, I guess you weigh down head and extremities if you're going to dump somebody in a bay, and so that just might happen in right. the road over time. But I think it's really compelling until you realize, well, Scott could have seen those reports on the news. He could have heard of that case and then that could copied have been part it. of his pre preparation right? of like so, this is how I'll cover for it. Yeah. So I mean, it, except it, if he was going to make that kind of future planning, then then he's not impulsive. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it contradicts totally. Okay. Totally. Um, but it could be, oh shit! I just killed my wife. What do I do with the body? Oh, yeah, I remember this news story. And then that's impulsive. I'm that just going to copy yeah. what I heard. Um, so it, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, you know, they try to allude to a serial killer. Um, there was another pregnant woman in the same town. This all took place in Modesto. I don't know if we ever said that. Modesto, California, um, up north. So that the same day that Lacey went missing... There's this woman that's about eight months pregnant. She owns a store in town. And she was out front of her shop kind of setting up. And there were some guys in a car across the street that she felt were just kind of watching her and leering at her and just very made her very, very nervous. Um, and eventually, after about a half an hour or so, they kind of drove in front of her store. And one of the guys got out. She went into her store, kind of hid out and called the police. And then... The suspicious men left. And what was the time frame on that? Um, that was like after eleven o'clock. So after Lacey would have been missing already. Okay. So uh, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Are there is there a ring of people that are trying to kidnap pregnant women the day before Christmas? I don't know. It's just it's right. sort of interesting. Um, and then there's the evidence. You know, we know that. 
Connor and Lacey's bodies were found separate, and the theory is originally that the fetus was expelled from her body at right. some point. Um, but there, the evidence from the beginning has clearly showed that there was um, a piece of plastic tied around Connor's neck. So, but was it tied? Well, or do they say that it would like was caught? Was caught? Know, sort of. I think that's up for expert interpretation. Um, but there are theories again that she was held until she gave birth, and then killed and or Connor killed as okay. well and whatever that was about. Um, apparently there was um, an expert that came in to testify about the time of death for them, um, had it as the day before Christmas, but then another expert was able to come in later and measure Connor's growth um, more accurately and showed his time of death as January 3rd. Wow. That's so, again, science. I mean, it's yeah. one of those, like, battle of the experts type right. things that you and I hear about and see a lot, and you get the defense to put up an expert and the prosecution to put up an expert, exactly. and they have to battle it out, and the jury believes who they believe. Um, and then there's also some information in the episode six of the A&E special that talks about um, this phone call that a prison guard listened to a recorded phone call from one of the inmates and the individual the inmate was talking to on the other line said that his brother was involved in kidnapping the woman in Modesto. So um, the prison guard actually called that in, that tip into Modesto PD, but nothing much was ever done with it. Wow, that seems pretty Yeah, and, and and they have, they have come to finally admit um, that there was a burglary going on that morning across the street from Lacey's house. So whether she interrupted that burglary and these guys are the ones that, you know, decided they wanted to get rid of the witness or whatever, that that seems to be the strongest theory that the Peterson family and attorneys are kind of going with. Which, you know, I mean, I, the these all seem so far like legitimate... Um, avenues of to you consider, know, right? To consider, I mean, sure. But then, why would he run? Well, it's, and there's a few things I can't get over. So I mean, yeah, there's, there's you know when it when it all comes back to it, what I can't get past is, oh yeah, why is he near the Mexico border with his hair dyed yellow and you know cash and passport on him? Yeah, and a, didn't he have a weapon too? He had a gun. I think he did. Yeah, he had you're a weapon right. on him. Um, it's just the biggest thing to me is telling Amber that your wife is dead before she's dead. Yeah. That's huge to me. Uh, then again, okay, look, I'm I just, just going to say, yeah. Go I'm going to say for, you know, since we're jumping on both sides of this is that, you know, a coincidence is a coincidence, right? Completely. Right? So there was another body that was found that was a pregnant female, same time. Maybe that was a coincidence. I just... Yeah. So to put that out there. Hey, here's my sad story so she doesn't think I'm married. I'll Oops, tell her my wife's it dead. happened. Oops, right? The last part that I can't get past in Scott's guilt is when I was still a police officer, there was a police department that held a training and the homicide investigators from the Lacey Peterson investigation came down to talk about the investigation. And this was after, you know, it was completely over. Scott's found guilty. Um, the whole nine yards. But what they did is they played some audio tape for us of the 
volunteer help center that was looking for her and putting together search parties. And okay. they had a tip line, so you could call in tips. And we know from various media outlets that people called in tips all around the country, just sightings of Lacey. Um, actually, I have a friend I went to high school with that looked so much like Lacey, was pregnant at that time of year, Whoa. and people would go up to her and ask her, and that was here in Southern California, wow. and ask her if it was her. And, I mean, and you would know more about this than I do, but there's got to be a, a huge number of um, just crazy calls. Oh, sure. Right? I mean, Completely. like, that's got to be... You're weeding out lots of the crazy yeah. stuff. So, what they did at this training was they played us the audio of Scott calling into this tip line to listen to the messages. Okay. So you, he calls up, punches up a number, and he can play the audio messages. So like the newest ones that had been right. posted yeah. by so people. He's, okay. Yeah, so he's calling in to check them. The audio that they have captures essentially Scott listening to these, but also anything that verbally Scott would say. Right? Oh, so, so it's being recorded. It's even. being wiretapped him calling in to this tip line oh, to so, listen. so they set that up. Correct. Okay, Correct. smart. Very good move. So they played us a section where he's calling in and listening to somebody saying, hey, I saw, you know, I have a sighting to report of Lacey in somewhere far away. I think it was even a different state. And you can just hear him snickering on the other Whoa. line as he's listening okay, to this. Okay, that's, that's chilling. It was so chilling, and I thought, uh, <laughs> you know, I, who else but a guilty person would just laugh like, that's impossible because she's in the bay or, you know, whatever yeah. he's thinking. But he's just mocking and chuckling for this person that says they have information about his missing wife. So. That seems to be... Uh, you know, for me, diagnostically, that seems to be like the nail in the coffin right yeah, there. Yeah, That really tells so, me a lot. I, you know, it, all these years later, it's still such a super interesting case. And especially when you have, again, a, a show that comes on and says, here's some interesting new theories or some holes that we can poke in it. Um, but we have a pretty darn good criminal justice system in a lot of ways. Oh, Not yeah. perfect, no. but it's pretty good. It's still and way better than the majority of the rest of the world. Right, yeah, right. Regardless of what people say. Sure. But there's just a few things I can't get past that can't make me jump over yeah. on the bandwagon of, you know, whatever's going to come up with Scott and maybe getting a new trial at some point. Well, so. yeah. So when we look at the little brief episode we did prior to this, which gave you a brief understanding or a brief introduction to psychopathy. And then we kind of tied it together with this idea that, you know, some people lead double lives, some long-term, some short-term. We certainly see that happening with Scott Peterson. Right. Whether or not this was going to be the first of many double lives that he was going to lead or one long chronic double life that he was going to lead um, or if it was a one-off you know it, it, I don't think that we're making any solid confirmation here of where he fits um, because we just don't know and if he had not been caught he who knows where this could have gone but it's very clear that this guy that Peterson is absolutely meeting a lot of these criteria. What we're just not seeing is the historical stuff that we usually see, you know, when we're doing the postmortem 
of sure. looking at someone's criminal life. We see, oh, look what happened to them historically that that helped form this. Right. We're not seeing that in this case, but but there's a lot lot that's there. Um, you know, we don't feel comfortable diagnosing anyone we don't evaluate ourselves and so that's well, what we're doing here but we want to tie in i feel very comfortable doing it i'm just not supposed to <laughs> well you're not supposed to so we're not going to go there <laughs> All right. um but yeah I, th- I think a lot of the traits and behaviors that we find very interesting in high profile individuals and criminals are definitely present with scott Scott Peterson, not me. Yeah, different Scott. Right. Is it weird to hear your name? <laughs> it is. I just realized that as we were doing it. Okay, so moving on, um, we got our actual first question from an audience member, which is very exciting, um, from Deb in Southern California in Los Angeles. She asks both of us, both of us, mm-hmm. what is the scariest thing that has ever happened to you in your line of work? Which is perfect because it falls into this topic that we're on right now. It really does. It really does. Um, Do you want to go first? I'll go first. I've got two, um, and I'm going to keep them brief. Um, One, two very different types of interactions. One um, was pretty scary for me because it was a very visceral experience. I was working at a jail. Not a, this was not at, during my prison time, but working at a jail. <laughs> working, actually employed. Yeah. And I was working in a capacity of doing emergency evaluations and um, intake evaluations of people coming into the jail system. And that would also be if an inmate was acting out and had to be brought from another part of the jail, they'd be brought down to the area where I worked in triage. And this is not someone who was mentally ill. This was not a mentally ill individual. It was a person who was a definitely a, you know, a, a lifetime criminal. And he was brought um, <clears throat> in for an evaluation. He was in four-point restraint, so it was a, like a sort of a very stripped-down wheelchair-type situation of welded metal, but four-point restraints, um, so he could not move his arms or his legs to... Um, assault anyone and he was surrounded by um, four law enforcement agents as they wheeled him in and um, as I went through you know sort of my standardized protocol to try and figure out what was going on and why I was being used in this manner um, he got very angry with me um, very angry and started spitting on me and my seating position where I was was my chair was backed up against a support beam of a, a pole right behind me. So my instinct was to push my feet back, roll the chair back, duck out, get out of that area. But I couldn't do it. I was caught. And this guy was, as gross as it sounds, he was just hawking loose oh on my me. God. And it's the only thing he could do. It's the only thing he could do. And the law enforcement that was there was very young. Mm-hmm. They were all very young. They did not know to put a spit mask on him, which is a you know it's a it's a contraption that's supposed to prevent spitting. And the worst part was as I was trying to get out, trying to cover my face, because immediately I go into going back to my training, bloodborne pathogens. Yep. Like we get that basic yep. bloodborne pathogens training, and um, his saliva went in my eye. Oh my god! And it was the the it was a very bizarre fear because I, I think I might have gone into a little bit of shock because immediately I'm have that that 
Terminator. You know, whenever they do a science fiction movie, and you're looking from the android's <laughs> point of view. Yes. Where you're seeing all this information scrolling. Yeah, that like it's so a red and suddenly, black screen. exactly. Suddenly, all I'm thinking about is, okay, well, the incidence for HIV transmission is very low because it can't really survive in saliva because of the acidic content, and once it hits oxygen, but it was very quick. It was like probably less than a second. It hit my eye. Probably don't have to worry about that, but. Fuck, now I have to worry about hep C. This is scrolling through your brain as he's still probably... As he's still spitting. As he's still spitting. To the point where I finally get my jacket up over my elbow like a, you know, like a cheap-ass Dracula over my face (laughs) and go, guys, you think you can put a fucking spit mask on him? Wow. Oh, oh, sorry, Doc. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So then they put a spit mask on him and they get him out and it turns into a whole different thing. But it was really frightening because I had to go then consult with medical doctor and you know you know i flushed sure. the shit out of my eyes and i was like i wanted to burn those clothes let me tell you i think i, I actually think i did i think i threw all the clothing yeah. away yeah um but i had to sit with a medical professional and, uh-huh. and think about um uh-huh. well what does this mean yeah. you know do you want to do the hiv prevention protocol right. which you know it's highly unlikely that you were exposed right. but we will give you what you want right. Um, and we're not going to know about the hep C for another three months because you have to come back and get tested. Great. So that was my body horror experience. That's horrific. Um, but the other one was when I was working in a state, the other one was when I was working in a state prison and I was working in what's called administrative segregation where the, it's basically the jail within the prison. So when the inmates break the very stringent laws within the correctional system, they go and they serve time at this jail within a jail. They have a lot. They're all, all privileges taken away, basically. Gotcha. So my duty as a mental health clinician, as a psychologist, was to work a caseload there, a, a constantly changing caseload of people coming in and out, and just making sure that their mental health needs were being addressed. And we had some very sick people, and we had some people that weren't sick. But even if they weren't sick, they're at, at a minimum, if they would not come out and talk to me in an office setting, I would go do cell-front checks. So... Uh, there was one guy that was there with his uh, friend. The guy was very high up in a, a crime organization, very, very high up. And they were he was there long term, and there were probably good reasons why he was there. He had probably made sure he was going to be there to keep himself safe because the guy was what we would call a shot caller. Right. Um, very high up in, in criminal system. So I was right out of grad school. I mean, literally, this is my first job out of grad school, and I'm shoved into administrative segregation unit of a uh, level four special needs yard. I mean, it was it was pretty nerve wracking to begin with. That's where right? they put us. That's where they put us. So I go to the front door to do a check on on this gentleman and his uh, cellmate. And he is, um, like, probably in the be- uh, 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 probably someone that's in the best shape I've ever seen. You know, he's basically living in a concrete and steel closet with a sliver of a window, and all they do is, and all he does is exercise all day. And we're not in prison, and we can barely get to the gym. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I can barely keep that donut from going down my gullet every day. But this guy was, like, totally jacked. And um, his friend, not so much. Um, and he always declined my services, but was extremely polite. But 
that like his gaze at me or his eye contact with me was frightening because you really got a sense that this person was dangerous. Right. He was never rude. I mean, he was always really, really polite. Um, and so I would go and I like every day I'm going back. Hey, how's it going? Either of you need anything? You know, if you want to come out and talk, if there's anything I can get you as far as like self-help materials, let me know. No, sir. Thank you, doctor. We really appreciate appreciate you coming by. Um, and I never forced it. I just really instinctually, and I went to my supervisor and super said, no, there's no reason to force this. So, um, one day I was standing at front checking in with them and there was an inmate three cells down that wasn't on my caseload. And the inmate started yelling, really insulting things to me about me and I don't, mm-hmm. I won't repeat the language because right. I'm salty but this was really <laughs> nasty stuff it was really nasty and it didn't bother me I mean like I that's kind of stuff that like you know you get when you're in a version of that when you're in grade school but I made eye contact with my client and I saw his very dangerous eyes get ten times more dangerous like there was a change it's dark in his, very dark and he very tightly said to me I want to apologize to you for that man's disrespect you have always been very respectful to every inmate on this block I'm very sorry and I was like no it's it's okay it's part of the job this is this is what I do don't worry about it is there anything I can do for you right thank you for your time I'll check in with you tomorrow so tomorrow it was uh, the end of my work week, which was a Thursday. My next day back in would be the following Monday. So I went in the, the following Monday, and I'm getting ready to do my checks, and the custody is are talking about an inmate that was, like, beaten almost to the point of death. And it was the guy that was yelling Oh, shit my God. Me. I was going to so, ask you if he swallowed his own tongue. <laughs> right. Oh, like, my God. Like, no, but I was like, well, what, 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 what do you mean? He go, yeah. And one of, the, one of the sergeants was laughing. And I said, what? I don't get it. He goes, well, don't you get the timing? It happened between 10.30 p.m. and 4 a.m. the day after you leave, after all that goes down. And they had to take him out on a stretcher. I'm like, wait, these are locked cells. Right. How, How did, does that happen? And the, the sergeant just shrugged his shoulders and said, that's what happens. I said, was he protecting me? And he goes, you're never going to know. You're never going to know if that was actually him being concerned for you being disrespected and he feels he owns you right? because you're his clinician or if it was part of a bigger setup. Sure. Is he setting you up to now feel aligned with him so that he's worked you for three months politely. Right. Now he's going to use you. Now you owe him something. So that was a different kind of fear for me of like, oh, it's not just this one level that we're working at. You're constantly having in a correctional setting mm-hmm. because they know everything about you. They know every pair of shoes you wear. Yep. They know how often you wear the gray and black striped shirt. Yep. They know what You're you their s- window to the outside. Exactly. And they've got nothing else to do but become an expert on you as an individual so that was a real frightful sure, awakening to think of how me. much planning could have gone into that one simple manipulation right and that's all they had wow. to do yeah. wow and i'll never know which also there's the sort of the gray area of never really well knowing. that's kind of the creepy part you could right. let your mind wander with that 
Um, so when Deb wrote in and asked her question, she asked in our careers, um, I think in law enforcement, it's a very clear answer for me that getting shot at was the most fearful I've ever been in my entire life. Um, that's kind of an easy answer and I don't want to go into all the circumstances of that, but I, I had two shootings in my career, one, um, in which I was receiving fire. And so, yeah, definitely just pure safety, life preservation sort of situation. Uh, but I would say the most fearful I'd ever been in working in mental health would be when I was working with all sexual offenders, which I saw every day, all day, was in groups with just me right. and 10 of them. You know, that that was in and of itself was fine. That, that work was actually very enjoyable for me for many years. Um, but I had an individual come in that was new and I was doing his evaluation. And from the moment he walked in, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. So your, your radar is going off. My radar was going off and it was incredibly tense and uncomfortable and just a lot of work on my part throughout the entire evaluation, you know, a couple of hours. But the most fearful part of it was when he thought that he had to tell me that the best time to ever break into somebody's house in Southern California is during the first downpour of the season because people aren't used to the sound and it muffles everything and you can walk around someone's house and they'll never even know it. Wow. <laughs> I remember when I went to training for the psychopathy checklist assessment uh -huh. and I remember the instructor saying, okay, who's ever worked with a psychopath? And you know, a lot of people raise their hand. I rose my hand just kind of by numbers saying, well, probably I must have. I've been working with forensic clients for so long. But after my experience with this guy, if I ever get asked that again, my hand is going to shoot straight up. We, we did end up doing the assessment on him, and he scored very high. Wow. But he stands out now as kind of my um, marker and sort of the gold standard to everyone else that I sort of... And to also know that, that you spectrum. have you also have that radar setting. You know, the hair stood sure, up. So that's like a sure. setting that you can you can put a little marker on your internal radar. Mine actually is, oddly enough, after working in the prison with lifers, you know, lifers who mm -hmm. really, you know, fit many of the criteria that you're talking about, is when I when I like them too much. When I yep. immediately yep. like them, yep. I've now learned like, oh wow, he's scoring really high for Completely. me. Completely. And isn't it weird that like that's something that we develop? I mean, every you know, as a parent, you develop a certain set of um, sure. extrasensory perceptions, yeah. as it were. And in this work, it's like now that, you know, you and I worked with the sex offenders for our internship, right. you know, it really changes my perspective when I go to amusement parks, you know, and I look it around does. and I go, that guy, and that it guy's takes, creeping me it out. It takes fine tuning to kind of hone that because it feels so counterintuitive because when you like somebody, that should mean that you're comfortable being around them. And I'm just talking in the general sense, Yeah, no, right? no, that's that, perfect. That's that's a good thing and I know that I've consulted with you at times and said oh I just you know there's something about this client I just really like and you're like eh, let me stop you there and you've done Red that for flag. me and you've done that for me as sure. well which is, that's why I think 
That's something just generally about mental health that always concerns me is when I talk to a therapist or a clinician that doesn't consult, Right. that really worries right. me. Yeah, yeah. So, Deb, thanks for writing in. You guys, please feel free to... Um, send questions. Send questions. We like to tell stories, so if you want personal <laughs> stories, please feel if free. If you haven't noticed. Yeah. But uh, please, uh, thanks so much for checking in with us. We are really excited to be able to offer this to you. And um, so tell your friends about LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, folks. We'll Bye. see you next week. Bye-bye.